Hello and welcome to episode 76 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this, this episode is the thoughts of PGA Tour player and increasingly important voice on golf architecture and issues surrounding the game, Zach Blair. I'll bring Zach into the conversation in just a moment. But before I do, let's meet my co-hosts for the day from the US. Blogger, Golf Channel regular, critic, commentator, author, and more. It's Jeff Shackleford. Jeff, great to be introducing episode 76, just two weeks after episode 75. I think that might be a record for State of the Game. I know. This, well, that's not good. We, come on now. We've, we've, we've backed them up faster than that. But yes, it is good to be back. Good, good to be talking to you and look forward to uh, picking Zach's brain today. Yeah. He's been playing a lot of interesting golf courses over the last year. He has indeed, and uh, it's been a while since we went <laughs> We went two in two weeks, I can tell you. I had a quick look at the records. From down here in Australia, it's former tour player turned commentator, columnist, one quarter of the Ogilvy, Clayton, Cocking and Mead design firm, Mike Clayton and Clates. This is what happens when something gets you fired up. Stu- two state of the games in two weeks. This one's all you're doing. Yeah, we should be doing more too. We should be. Especially now, and the game's gone mad. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly well, I think you've set the tone for the day, and uh, thank you for doing that, Clates. Uh, finally, to today's guest, one who will be a familiar name to those with an interest in golf course architecture and or the PGA Tour, Zach Blair, fast becoming Utah's answer to Jeff Ogilvy, a world-class golfer with an interest in the game that goes beyond his own strokes-gained putting statistic. It's a real pleasure to welcome Zach to the podcast, and Zach, looking forward to getting your thoughts on all things golf today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to try and cover a range of topics. I think the distance issue will probably come up, as will some golf course architecture stuff. But let's start with the distance thing. I wanted to come to you about this, Zach, because you obviously you play a lot of primes and with a lot of amateurs. You're a world-class player, as I said. What's the fascination with distance in this game? I saw some footage during the week on Facebook of John Rahm hitting a 300-yard four-iron and people applauding and thinking that was a fantastic thing. What's the fascination with distance, Zach, do you reckon? I mean, I think you just hear about it so much that it just kind of gets pounded in everybody's brains. And I was talking to some people about it last week. Um, I think guys think they like distance. You know, I think they want to like it. And I think, uh, but it's kind of just a a myth. I think they like other things more than distance, but they just get drilled with distance, distance, distance all the time. So I don't know. It's kind of wild. And it is to the exclusion of almost all other skill sets in the game, isn't it? What's marketed to the amateurs. Everything is, they've made the conversation completely distance, haven't they? And we seem to have bought it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think I had a look at your averages. You averaged 272 yards off the tee, according to the PGA Tour stats. I know that they're not always, you know, uh, a fair reflection of everything. That's a full 50 yards behind Tony Finau, the leader in the driving distance category. What's it like to play as one of the shorter hitters on tour? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the shortest guy out there, I would say. Um, But, yeah, 50 yards is a lot. (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's just one of those things where it doesn't mean that I can't compete with them week in and week out. I think I just have to be a little sharper um, to be up near the top every week. Yeah, indeed. Clayton, I'm going to give you an opportunity for an early rant. Did you see the John Rahm 300-yard four-iron? And silly question because I already know the answer. What was your take on that? Well, it was impressive. I saw it, and it was like, how the hell did he hit a four-iron 300 yards? But With a three-quarter swing. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what sort of four-iron it was. One of those big mm. triangular pyramid-shaped heads with hollowed-out backs, and it was a proper four-iron. But I saw him drive to the top of the hill at the 15th at Kingston, at the 17th at Kingston Heath in the World Cup where he could see the green. So nothing surprises me. If, if, if anyone who can do that can hit a four-iron 300 yards, but – 
you wonder where it all ends. You wonder where the next group of John Rams is because there'll be a whole pile of them. Because it, you know, it's never stopped. Really. It went from Snead to Nicholas to uh, Tiger, really, to what well, going to Daly to Tiger to, to Baba. You know, we've had five kind of players who've made it huge jumps in how far the ball goes and I'm not sure why it's going to be any different. So we're ranting early, but you know, where does it all end? But when, when you've got tailor-made advertising of bloke hitting a four on 300 yards, it's, I mean, it's complete madness, really. Any sort of iron-headed club. I don't, care what iron, I don't care what they've put on the back of it. Any iron-headed club that goes 300 yards is impressive. Zach, have you seen the next generation that Clates is talking about there? Cameron Champ we hear a bit about. Have you seen some of these guys? What is coming in terms of how far the next generation of touring pros might actually hit the ball? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you mentioned Cam Champ, and uh, I mean, I played with – we played with a kid down in Palm Springs. I can't really remember his name, but we played with him in this event uh, in December. I mean, he hits it like like 380 yards. It's crazy. So oh, that's I think uh, is gonna... that Charlie Ryder? Charlie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. there's this. We played this event out at the the plantation in Palm Springs, and the last hole is like 5:30, and he was hitting sandwich in. No. <laughs> so so I mean. It's just wild. I think, like you said, I think we'll just keep seeing people hitting it further and further as long as they're going to let this uh, let this thing go. So, Well, this is where we come to you, Shaq. Are they going to let this thing go? Are you hearing anything? After the distance report, and there was a big kerfuffle, and we even recorded a state of the game about it all. All seems to have a little bit quiet, a lot of arguing on Twitter. You know, the, the two sides are firmly entrenched. What's uh, Has there been any movement, Shaq? What are you hearing behind the scenes? Uh, we've seen... One other company now come out and stand with Titleist, that's TaylorMade, say they're against any proposed rollback, which hasn't been proposed yet, but I think we all know that, you know, there's a bunch of us who'd like that. Are you hearing much from behind the scenes, Shaq, on, you know, the positions of the manufacturers and the, the governing bodies? Uh, no. I, well, I, I, there are a lot of opinions. I, I was down at Bay Hill, and it, it's uh, fascinating to hear the stances of the of the tour and, and, and some of the tour players. Uh, I think, though, that the PGA Tour has probably underestimated uh, how the the way players are starting to feel. And there's still a long ways to go. But people like Zach have uh, opened some eyes about uh, what golf uh, is and at its best and what's fun. And I, I finally, we, we discussed it on last week's show, but I finally have started listening to players uh, acknowledge that they feel like that they're not cheating, but they're not getting to experience certain shots and sensations that they should because they're just hitting it so far uh, in places that that the architect never uh, envisioned. And so that's going to take a while. There's, there aren't that many people like Zach or or Adam Scott or Jeff Ogilvie um, who can can step back. Uh, and and st- and not make it about themselves, but actually think of the broader picture and say, is this really a test of skill? Is this what's best for the game? And and um, but I, I guess the most alarming thing I say I heard at Bay Hill that that uh, I'd be curious uh, Zach's uh, view on this, but but there was real anger at the USGA and RNA from several people. Um, I mean, I got, I just, I would stand there and listen to some, some of these rants and they were really rants about how disrespectful they were in their report to the modern athlete. Uh, 
to how much these how the, the diets and the sleep and the and 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 the athleticism of the modern player. And I, you know, I I had just been at the Champions Tour the week before, so I'm listening to these things, thinking of guys with pop bellies who were telling me I'm hitting it 20 yards longer than when, when I was one of the best players in the world, and I, and that just shouldn't be the case. So to hear it's one thing to buy the athleticism thing, but to hear the anger as if this was a a, a personal shot by the by the governing bodies to not acknowledge that is is fascinating to me, and I, I'd be curious, Zach, what your your take is on, uh, I guess, uh, the role of athleticism in distance, but but more importantly, just kind of that that mindset the players now uh, uh, see themselves as as some of the best athletes in the world, <laughs> if that's if that's legitimate. Um, you know what? I would say across the board, looking at all the players, I would say, sure, you know, they're probably more athletic from top to bottom. But it's I think it's kind of silly to say that guys like Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer, or Greg Norman <laughs> weren't as athletic as guys today that are at yeah. the top. I mean, that's just stupid. You know, yeah. I mean, I grew up my dad played out there a little bit and and I've ran around with people that have kind of seen it not just the guys today but kind of all the way through the spectrum you know Andy Martinez was a guy that caddied for me for multiple years that's been out there probably longer than anybody caddying and you know when you get when you get to hear guys like him tell stories of how hard guys like Arnold Palmer would hit it or or how hard Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman was able to hit the driver, you know, when it was a little driver and hit it out there 285 to 300. Um, It's kind of silly, I think, to to say that those guys weren't (laughs) as athletic as the guys today. Martinez, did he caddy for Johnny Miller and Tom Lehman, if I'm not mistaken, throughout that lengthy career? Yeah. Wow, he was – he's seen some golf, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's been up there. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, fantastic. What do you think that's about, Zach? Is there – it feels like well, we're old blokes. We always complain about young people. It's part of our job as old people to do that. Um, but it feels like there's more of a disconnect perhaps between the generations of players than there was previously. As you said, you grew up around the tour and so that gives you a certain perspective. But it feels like some of the younger players, and it, the tour is a younger place probably than it ever has been. Um, you know, kid, young guys now in 20 to 23 are kind of, you know, they're out there ready to win and winning is there a disconnect between the older players and the younger players are we missing something there is there a mentoring thing that's stopped happening that used to happen i don't know about that um i think there's there's certain people that have kind of taken guys under their wing um but i think the game has kind of changed a little bit um people kind of run around with their whole crew of coaches and trainers and mental coaches and you might not need or have that kind of mentor that kind of takes you under, under his wing and kind of brings you up. But, uh, I still think there's a lot of people out there that respect that older generation of people as they should. Yeah. The tour has generally had a culture, hasn't it? I've always felt, you know, probably more so than all of sports, all other sports, you get much more of a generational mix in golf, don't you? I mean, it's completely feasible that one day you might tee it up with Tom Watson. Yeah, I played with Tom Watson uh, my rookie year at Harbortown. It was one of the cooler rounds I've played out on tour. It was it was amazing to see someone like that, you know, in his 50s, able to play with, you know, a kid in his 20s and and uh, keep it up with me. Yeah. Anything in that, Clates? You've been around the golf 
seen for <laughs> your whole life. Is there a change? I remember we saw the Twitter exchange and we discussed it between yourself and Lucas Herbert, and I was involved in it, and Jeff and a bunch of others. You know, Lucas is a an adamant supporter of the status quo, and uh, you know the ball doesn't need to be rolled back, and that's okay. He's a young guy, but there was a tone about that conversation that felt like I think I discussed with you that maybe you wouldn't have had some years ago between an elder statesman of the game being yourself and a younger player. Yeah, I mean, I would never would have got dead gotten in an argument with Peter Thompson on Twitter. Not that I'm Peter Thompson, but um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what to make of his views. But I mean, I think we all, as young players, we all just listened to Graham Marsh and Peter Thompson and just took in what they said. We didn't dare kind of, well, we thought about what they said, but you know, you listen to what they said because they were smart players. Who, and I'm, not, I'm sure that goes on now. You know, I wonder whether. Zach, you're talking about that these you know, the hordes of people who travel with these players is, you know, they're the only people that players are listening to, and all, all they seem to do is tell them how great they are and become a massive cheer squad and tell them how athletic they are and how great they are. And they're entitled to hit the ball 350 yards because that's, you know that's because they're the greatest players ever and they work so hard. And you know, there's always been me the feel of some sort of sense of entitlement that, that they're entitled to hit the ball so far because they're so talented and so good. Whereas, in fact, it's all due to the equipment, as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think – I don't know if people really want to hear this or, or it's the right time for people to hear this, but, I mean, golf, it's just easier to hit it further and it's easier to be better, and that's why you're seeing kids at a younger age able to hit it further and able to excel quicker is just because golf's easier. You know, the ball goes further, the equipment's more user-friendly, and – and like you said, these people learn from a really young age that they're really good and, and they keep hearing that they're really good and they see that they're good. And so, yeah, you, you know, they might feel a little more entitled. And like you said, they kind of have that entourage around them that feeds them that they're the best. And that's kind of their job. So it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to knock that. But it's just a different uh different era i guess and yeah, doesn't doesn't hurt that there's so much money in the game does there zach when you can be a 25 year old multi-millionaire why wouldn't you think you're fantastic and entitled to everything you got that's completely understandable wouldn't the simplest way to solve this athletic debate be to hand today's generation old equipment for a 72 hole tournament and see how they go or is that unfair zach because players swing it differently now because the equipment's different no i think that would be great to see you know i think the the easiest way to settle that that debate about people being more athletic and people saying that the ball doesn't go further or that the help or that the equipment doesn't help. I mean, my dad's in his sixties now and hits it 25 yards further than he did when he played on tour. Mm. So, and he doesn't work out. He's no more athletic. You know, he's way less athletic than he was 40 years ago or 35 years ago. So it's just, it's just one of those things. People need to accept that the, the ball and the equipment helps more. Uh, you know, it's just, it's nothing to fight about. It's just part of the deal. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, interesting. What about, what about your own workout re- regime, Zach? Have you got an entourage and do you do all that sort of stuff or? You know, I tried it uh, for a couple of years and it just wasn't for me. You know, I didn't feel like I, I saw huge improvements in areas that I was looking to, to get better. You know, as you guys know, it's, it's very important in golf right now to hit it far. You know, if you, if you can get it up there in the three, three Oh five range, 
uh, it kind of opens more doors and you're able to, you know, excel, I think a little more. And I obviously wasn't able to pick up 25 yards. You know, you, you, you said earlier in the show, I'm, I'm like a 270, 275 hitter. You know, I'm just probably never going to be able to hit it 305. And, and I just kind of accepted that and just stopped trying to get there by working out and, you know, went out and tried to work on my short game a little bit. <laughs> Obviously, it's worth you. You've kept your card, which is an extremely – you're only second shortest on the tour, by the way. There is one player behind you. Um, so I can't remember who it was now. I've, cl- I've closed the window. I would have told you, but you're only the uh, – Well, that's good to know. Second, that's right. You're, you're better than somebody. Um, I suppose some of us are just built for comfort, Zach. Uh, so, you know, accept that and be happy within yourself. I suppose it all leads to – Shaq, and these are some of the questions. They're the same old questions and answers, I guess, but it, you can't sort of put them too often, can you? Regardless of why the ball goes further, why is it important that we restrict it? doesn't matter whether it's athleticism equipment. You can argue about that all you like, but I think we all accept it goes further. Uh, let's talk about why we need to restrict it. What's the importance of that? Well, I would, and I'd, I'd be very curious to hear Zach's uh, views on this topic prior to uh, working on a routing of a golf course and after. But obviously the number one reason that Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and then people like us have uh, taken this stance is architecture and uh, um, understanding the role that it plays in expanding the footprint of, of golf. Uh, and then also just in how it limits your ability to use width and create uh, fun risk reward holes. And, the ment- and, and it, I mean, it doesn't, 100% restrict you, but when you have people you're reporting to, clients, and there are people who want a certain yardage or people who want to host a tournament or courses that think they're going to host a tournament, uh, they want to feel like they always have that option, even if they have no chance, that it, it just kind of infiltrates the entire mindset of the game that, that we need to kind of keep chasing yardage to uh, appease uh, or to appeal or to suit the needs of the, that modern game. And I always, you know, the analogy I use is a rubber band. The more you pull on it, the narrower it gets. And that's kind of what happens with the more you lengthen holes or the more you have to design from that point of view. You you stretch things out. Things get narrower. It, it reduces your ability to f- just find a great hole and not worry about the yardage or, or uh, a, a possible yardage down the road. So um, I think that's where Tiger came around. I think he's always had the view on the other, the other part of the argument to answer your question, Rod is, is skill, uh, the ball spinning, shaping shots, creativity, and, uh, misses going more offline when they're truly a miss and all those elements, the skill side of the debate. And I think tiger always had a view on that. And then now that he's been designing golf courses and has a big plan in front of him and is told they can't go there because before that great spot is for a tee, uh, because they really need the hole to be longer and they need to knock down that hill to get the hole at a proper length. That's where somebody like him goes, oh, this is just silly. This is dumb. This is really dumb. <laughs> I, that's a great hole. Why am I not being able to design that hole the way I want uh, for this kind of a game? So, And then once you've gone through that process uh, in any way and working on a routing, it totally changes your view on this topic and it it, uh, it makes you know that you how you're depriving uh people possibly of, of, of a more ideal and fun golf hole. Mm. Zach, you are, of course, in the process. I mean, the Buck Club, anybody who follows you on Twitter knows about this project. You found the land. I've seen you out there playing a bit of dirt golf with Andy Johnson and others, which is all no doubt very exciting. Is Jeff right about that? Is 
has the process of actually trying to lay a golf course out on the ground changed or strengthened your views on some of this stuff in any way? Yeah, like Jeff mentioned, you know, it's different if you're trying to design a golf course to host a tournament or a major championship because they're going to have these numbers that they need. You know, they're going to need these 500-yard par fours and they're going to have to get it stretched out to 70 800 yards now you know what i mean so it's different i kind of went into it saying i want to design a golf course that makes you hit all the shots in your bag not necessarily have a certain par on it or a certain yardage total yardage in mind but just because i think that's the biggest thing that's missing from golf right now is everyone's so um stuck on the par and what's a winning score and how, how long golf holes are and everything when they should be worried about like, let's test these players and make them hit all the shots. So I think that's kind of the debate where everybody just isn't getting it right now. I think they're lost in, in everything else. Is, I'm going to come to Clayton on that because I think that's exactly what Clayton's been saying for years in, in a different sort of way, but that's exactly sort of what he's been suggesting. But I wanted to ask you this, Zach, and having been around the, the PGA Tour for a long time, as you said, your dad played out there, is the modern game more one-dimensional and, ergo, somewhat less entertaining to watch than it used to be 30 years ago with a ball that spun more, as Jeff said, for both good shots and bad? Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to Jeff Ogilvie about it a little bit, and it's like, you know, you're asking players to do a certain thing. You're, you're telling them to hit it as far down there as you can, and there's no real deterrent for being in the fairway or in the rough, and then you just hit a shot onto the green and try and make a putt. So if, if you had, you know, and that's because the holes are getting longer and longer, and it, but if you're telling a guy that, hey, you're going to play a 380-yard hole, and you're going to have to really be precise with these wedge shots and get it in a certain area to, to get the angle into a certain pin to get it close. Then all of a sudden you're, you're not asking guys to tee it high and let it fly and get it down as far as they can. You're asking guys to hit the proper shot to get the angle to, to score well. So it's just a, a, I think it's a kind of a thought process that a lot of people haven't heard and don't really understand yet. You know, they think they like the long ball, but I think they like the scoring opportunities and the different shots they see when they go to some of these shorter places. Yeah, indeed. I suppose the danger of that, Zach, and which we don't want to do, is take the driver out of players' hands either, is it? I mean, you like to see players, well, it used to be the most difficult club in the bag. Some would say it's now the easiest to hit. You want to see good players and good drivers rewarded, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And and you, you, you mentioned it perfectly there. I, the driver, you know, you guys know more than me, but like when my dad grew up, the driver was really, really hard to hit. Like you had to hit a really good shot to hit a nice drive and you could really get it hooking if you hit a bad shot and you could miss them way right if you hit a, you know, if you pushed it. Now it's, it's really the easiest club to hit and it's the club that the players really trust the most and have kind of dialed in perfectly. So it's, uh, yeah, you would hate to lose the driver, but at the same time, if it if losing the driver meant hey you're going to see guys hit a, a a wider range of of approach shots into the green I would be okay with that. Mm. So Zach, I mean, what, one of those things you, I think it was you who spoke about on that Twitter debate was make the tee shorter. Yeah, that was your suggestion, wasn't it? So yeah, so 
by making the tee, what, an inch and a half long or an inch long as opposed to whatever they are now, three or four inches, that would – so rather than – Zach's proposition was that rather than arguing about the ball and the driver, just make the tee shorter. So how much difference would that make, do you think, in terms of the shape of the driver or – I think the club manufacturers would would be able to do something to, you know, pick up more yardage again. But but at the same time, I think you, you would you would have less um, ability to just tee it high and get that maximum like launch with that low spin. And I, I think it would be a, a somewhat easier solution than asking all these club manufacturers and ball manufacturers to like, Hey, let's roll back the ball. I think, I think guys would lose distance for sure, because I don't think you'd be able to carry it as far. You wouldn't lose a ton, but I think it would be a decent um, strategy to kind of reduce what's going on right now in an easy way. I think. How does, how does the modern driver go off the deck for a top level player? Zach? We don't see the shot very often, obviously, because the club's not designed to do that. We used to see Norman hit the driver off the deck. It's rarer these days. How does it go off the deck, the driver? And is that the sort of impact you're talking about? It, it just changes the, the reaction between club and ball enough with a shorter tee to perhaps change the way players hit it. Yeah. I just don't think you, you can still hit it far and you can hit it good, but you have to hit it better. Obviously you got, it's got to be more of a, you know, a square hit, but I, I think you would, you would see that carry distance brought way down. Mm. Cause like hitting a driver off the deck, you're not going to be able to get that like 320 carry. Like some of these guys are, are able to get with the, the modern drivers right now. Shaq, that's an intriguing idea. Isn't it? And stunningly simple <laughs> as an ocean. Yeah. It's it's by far the most, uh, wonderfully simplistic one I've heard yet. Cause because I, I I have discussed with quite a few players we we talked about last uh, show that that there are an increasing number who would love to to see the driver head reduced, but you know, there are a lot of hurdles to getting that done, and you need the cooperation of manufacturers, and you need a right reason, and you need testing. There's a lot of just a lot of headaches. Try, involved, selling, whereas, try you, selling that to the public, Shaq. <laughs> wait a second. Now, now, see that's now that's interesting. You say that because because the the players who who've been intrigued by that idea. Fully are fully aware of how good players think, uh, and I say good players. Somebody who's a, let's say a seven or eight handicap down, they kind of want to. They kind of want to be a tour pro, and there there are quite a few people who are of the view that uh, that that people will buy those clubs, or they can see club championships mandating those and that kind of thing. It's a mess, but it is kind of interesting. Mm. And okay. but I think the T solution is is just way more. Uh, again, it's so, it's it'd be so fun to just see it tried, and this is what I've argued with um, with with listener Wally, uh, who I know is out there enjoying the show this week. Um, that that we, we we need to see tests of these things. Let's see a three thirty uh, cc driver open. Let's see the low T uh, open. Wouldn't it be fun uh, if a, a crump cup or a, an elite event that has good players, but maybe is not something that's played for money or, or what have you? This is where the USGA and the RNA to me, uh, have been so short-sighted in not trying to convince some of these events to try something like that. And the low T one, I mean, I just don't know who could argue with mm. with that. Um, it's easy to police. Yeah. It's easy to do. Yeah. Um, and and it just would be, it, it would just, it, it would be interesting. Yeah, don't fire up. So the team manufacturers have a I was going to say, don't, don't fire yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, we'll don't fire one. up. There'll be, well, yeah, yeah, big T's. The ones who make one 
with the uh, the stripes now and all the yeah yeah you're right <laughs> their lobbyists will come out of the woodwork. Oh dear, absolutely uh, extraordinary stuff. Uh, I wanted to get, uh, Jeff. I suppose one one thing about reducing the size of the driver. Let's let's, let's get into design. Come yes, on. I was just going to say. I was. A, that's what I wanted want to, to do. Kill Zach with distance talk. That's come on. exactly right. To come back. <laughs> and Clates, I wanted to come to you because Zach talked about something when he was talking about the Buck Club, which we'll talk to him about in a moment. Yeah. About the notion of you know forgetting about par and distance and just sort of having the freedom to build a golf course that just requires shots and not demanding or sort of certain shots. Talk a little bit about that because. It's one of the things we kind of lost with for a game that is so incredibly free and free of lines and boundaries like most other games. Golf is so stuck in a bunch of thinking, isn't it? It's got to be par seventy two, four par fives, four par threes. Why can't we break the shackles of this, like Zach's talking about? And what are the benefits yeah. of doing that? Well, it's just crazy. There was a great podcast with Ian Andrew, Feed, uh, the, Feed the Ball, mm, Derek Dunn, where he spoke about. You know, he said, he said, "I'd love to make a par sixty eight course and just break this mold of." Mold of you know it's got to have four par fives and par seventy two and a certain yardage and we played a senior prime at Hillsville which is of course we redesigned years ago it's it was five thousand meters and we shortened it by about fifty par it's really a par sixty six we cheated on the yardage to get to four hundred and forty yard holes to, to par fives but it was it's such a fun course to play it was the first time I'd ever played it in, well. It was the first full 18-hole round I'd ever played there, but playing in a tournament was – because you think differently in a tournament. You know, the, the, the shot that looks like fun when you're mucking around is a bit scarier when you're <laughs> yeah. counting every shot. But, um, you know, was the perfect model for 90% of people who play golf, 5,000 metres. Mm. You, know, you know, the strategy for, for me or, or, or a tour player on a, on a hole that's 450 yards becomes relevant on a 330-yard hole for 90% of people who play it. So – you know, no one will ever start building 5,000-meter courses, but it's a pity because they're so much fun to play for the average player. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's, um, I've forgotten again. I've lost my track. of trying to thought again, which I do all the time. Um, <laughs> You've got too much going on in your head. Well, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and Jeff, I mean, I, we had a Alex Russell Society meeting in Melbourne this week who was, Al, uh, was Alice McKenzie's partner in Australia. And we were talking about it. The concept which you guys returned to LA Country Club of the course within a course, and it just amazes me. The more I think about it, the more I talk about it, that concept never took hold about the, the concept of long par threes that could play as short par fours, and par, you know, the second hole that can be a four or a five, and the fifth yeah. hole with that full front pin that plays at 350 yards, and the, the 15th hole they played at 78 yards in the Walker Cup. Why that concept never just became mainstream because it's such a logical. I mean, golf courses are on massive pieces yeah. of land. I mean, there was always an opportunity to make this course within a course. And if so- somehow, you know, I suppose that, the, you know, it was like all things designed, that depression came and the war came and all those great old designers died. And then Trent Jones never picked up on it or Dick Wilson. So it just, and then it just, Nicholas and Norman and Palmer and, you know, that generation of architects probably never knew about it. And, it, and it's almost like it's, t- it's time has certainly come to, just revive Thomas's genius concept of the course within the course, and that yeah. you know, that to me is almost the the next generation of it is. Yeah, explain that. Where golf is yeah. you know, I think yeah, I think handicapping was a a big problem in uh, causing and this. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the example at LA Country Club when 
we got resistance to it. And I think, uh, like we, like any golf course has for the same question we got was, well, what, what, what if somebody comes out, uh, there were two questions. What if, what if I bring my guests out and we're playing the LA CC North at, <laughs> at 6,100 yards today? Um, well, one, I, I brought somebody out here to play a course that's, that's you know, from the, uh, they want to play it the way it was supposed to be designed. You know, that thing, there's that element. Then there was the handicapping element. And we even went to the SCGA and the SCGA went and said, you just tell us what the, that's the Southern California Golf Association. What, right. what the, what the, uh, you know, we just, it's, it's numbers. It's, it's more of, it's, it's inputting numbers and you can adjust, you can have different course ratings because uh, we were kind of proposing like four set courses based on uh, generally what George Thomas sketched out. There were one or two little changes. And so those were the hurdles from a country club, an existing club point of view. Um, but now with handicapping systems being able to be so much more adjustable and that's where, you know, nine hole rounds and all these different things that are coming into play, there aren't many excuses left for it other than I think imaginations of the architects when they're when they're in the field uh and then the one minor one that would be pretty wonky and i'm throwing this out there in case zach's thinking of of trying to <laughs> incorporate that concept but uh usga greens clate clates are uh, a tough because those little wings that thomas created for those those days when you'd go you know off the grid and play the the fifth hole at 350 to that little crazy yeah. little far right hole location it's hard to create those wings in, in the modern green construction methodology. Um, so that was another thing we encountered there, but, but obviously we, we overcame it. But it certainly is, if, if, you're, if you're looking at doing the concept and really taking it into the green complexes like that, which I think is so fun, and it's so fun to design, it's fun to imagine. And then uh, what we think, after the resistance uh, to the concept from the numerical side and all that, once it's explained and people have seen it in action, the club uh, has totally embraced it when they have events and they have a blast. In fact, they've actually taken it. <laughs> they actually like go too far. There have been a couple examples. They were like, yeah, we did this. We set it up this way. And it's like, I don't think that was one we had in mind. But you know what? I'm not going to discourage it because I love the thinking. Jeff, just, oh, just to great. back up, Jeff, explain to those who don't know what, what that notion was at LACC, the, the course within the course. I mean, there'll, be, there'll be some who aren't familiar with it. What, what was it that George Thomas yeah. had done there? Yeah, so, so he laid out, yeah, he, he, he redesigned the course in 1927, and he wrote an article uh, explaining that there were, he called it the four courses of Los Angeles North, and he sketched out four very distinct setups and pars uh, for the golf course within the normal routing of the course. And, um, the, and they were, they were just, one was very short and par 69, one was par 73 and maxed out. And then the other two were sort of somewhere in between. And the view was that inland golf could not have the variety that Lynx golf provides day to day because we just don't have the, 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 the wind and the, um, the, the, the differences that mother nature provides at a, at a Lynx. So his concept was, the architect it's the architect's job to to give you the option to have those that kind of variety because you'll get bored playing your your course every day and um and and so the the brilliance of it to me is that it's just that very idea that you can have multiple courses within one design and um 
and and get that fun variety that your course never gets stale. And it, it speaks to one of the great issues that we encountered, don't we, Clades down here, the argument against joining a golf club in the modern era with people restricted. People want to play all sorts of different courses. They don't want to be restricted to one course. Imagine if you had four courses within your own home course. How good yeah. would that be? You, you play a different course every week um, for a month. Uh, question for Zach here, Zach. All of what Jeff's just spoken about then, when he's talking about the course within the course and the concept, you know, the mind starts racing in a way it doesn't when you talk about the distance debate. How did the engineers get a hold of golf and take over from the artists? Because that's kind of what's happened, isn't it? The engineers want four par fives and four par threes and par 72 and this many yards. The artists just want what you were talking about. You know, let's go out on a field and hit the shots. Yeah, I think it's kind of the same thing we talked about earlier with um, people just getting drilled with distance all the time. So that's what they think they want. And that's what everyone's concerned about. It's kind of the same thing on the golf course argument. It's they've been drilled their entire life that it needs to be par 72, four par fives, four par threes. And at least they're starting, you know, at least it's starting to break out of that mold where people are doing different things. So I think it's just, it's one of those things where we need some people to, to talk about it more and we need the general public i guess to maybe have a little more access to some of these places that that do this Mm. and then they'll see how much fun it is and hopefully uh it grows the game in the right way and and everybody gets on board because it's kind of once you see it and once you experience it it's kind of like a no-brainer this is what i was about to say it's funny isn't it i I, I took a couple of mates of mine in the last couple of years down to bamboogle dunes all grown up in sydney playing golf in sydney which is a fairly restricted kikuyu grass tree lines fairly narrow defined fairway there's rough here's a green bunker in front and it's it's for the most part pretty one-dimensional in sydney i think that's a fair statement isn't it clates we don't have a royal melbourne or a victoria or a kingston either amongst it well you've you've got uh, yeah it's a fair statement yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can try we've got some nice golf courses we've got nothing like that but the revelation that comes to people when they stand on the first hole at lost farm and it's a hundred yard well, I'm not, have you been there zach i know you've been to australia did you go to bamboogle yeah yeah yeah, the revelation for people when they've grown up with golf looking a certain way and then 18 hole late 18 holes later they walk off and they're different, aren't they? You would have seen that transformation in people, I assume, from time to time. It's quite startling, isn't it, to see? Yeah, it's it's really cool. I think it's, I mean, it's just one of those things. Yeah, like I said, you just, people need to see it more. And, and if we can kind of get the word out there and spread it the right way and people can have more access to these places, I think it's a, it'll be kind of a revelation. Sure. But Barnboogle is like very, very cool. That Lost Farm, I, I was having like it panic attack after the first five holes because it was so cool. Wow. Talk about that because, of course, Zach, we know from Twitter that you do a lot of traveling and playing a lot of golf that isn't tour golf. In fact, you seek out uh, interesting and diverse courses. Tell us a little bit about that. We all know that you've you've clearly got an interest in golf course. Where does it come from and what are some of those cool experiences you've had and why do you do that? I mean, you play golf for a living. Surely you need a break occasionally or are you like Clates? You can't get enough. Yeah, I really just can't get enough. I, uh, I really like golf and I like playing and I like going out with my friends and seeing cool places. And it's, it's one of those things where I've been blessed with the ability to play golf at a high level. And it's fun to go out and experience these other places that, uh, you know, most people don't get to see. And what are you looking for? What do you find? Mostly it kind of started out as just 
basic research on uh, building my course. I kind of went out to a bunch of, you know, quote unquote, the best courses in the world to kind of see what made them the best. And then I kind of just got the the itch to keep doing it and keep seeing and exploring and finding out why these courses were so good. And it's been it's been a fun little uh, journey. Jeff, I'm sure you got some more. Exactly. Technically interesting well, questions. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 I know you've already had an influence on Jeff Ogilvy. He's he's trying to seek out um, some games at at fun places when he's now traveling on the tour. But one of the things I've kind of wondered about of late, uh, prompted in part by you and your your social media posting of what you do, but also just what you actually say and the things that resonate with you at certain golf courses, it started to make me wonder though how. I'm, I'm, how many guys have come to you, other players, and 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 asked your thoughts on some places, or or or, or have there been many? Because I, I kind of wonder some days when I'm listening to guys on the tour today talk about golf, how much they really, uh, how much fun golf they actually play, uh, or if it's just um, the the nature of the the game that that it's all business and and it, it's it's rare for them to just do what you do, which is seek out some other places in town and, and, uh, have a fun game and just enjoy being somewhere different. Is that something, um, you've had many discussions with other guys about? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a handful of guys out there that, uh, that really kind of think of, think of golf the way I do. And then there's a, another handful of guys out there that, look, they, they just, they just are good at golf. They like it. They're professional golfers and, and they play because they're the best at it and they're going to make their living off it. And they might not enjoy it kind of in a non-tournament aspect. And that's fine too. And then I think there's a big group of guys that are kind of, you know, on the fence uh, on that. They, they kind of like it and they kind of want to play when, when it's not a tournament but at the same time, it's like they have so much other stuff going on that they're like, eh, this, is it really worth it to go out and see a cool golf course? Yeah. Yeah, and I get that too. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. they have to rest. You have to pace yourself during the tournament week um, and, and all that stuff too. That's understandable. Um, I I'm also wanted to ask uh, just kind of – I'm very curious about the what you have probably most changed your views on since you've been going out and seeking other things, is this something like uh, visibility? Are you more open to uphill par threes, you know, where you don't see the green versus when you first started playing, you hated par threes that, you know, you couldn't see the bottom of the flag or what, what kind of, what have you been able to reflect and kind of think about what thing you probably most uh, changed your views on seeing all these courses? I think the biggest change of heart that I've had is I used to be very critical on wild green complexes and I still am Mm. a little harsh on them, but I think I've come to appreciate and better understand where the, you know, the architect was thinking, especially some of the, the newer, uh, the newer architects, kind of some of the greens they've built. I used to be very critical on how wild they were and how I hated them and, how they didn't need to do that. But then, you know, the, the more I've understood golf and the more I've heard people that know a lot more about it than me, you know, golf isn't something where you should be able to go out and judge a golf course on one round. You know, really, you should have to play, you know, 
more than 10 rounds at a golf course to re- even really fully experience what's going on out there. So sometimes you have to have, you know, more severe green complexes to keep things interesting, especially if you don't have, uh, you know, high winds or like you were talking about the ability to have very different conditions day to day. So I think that's kind of the one thing that's, that's changed with me a lot. I'm a little more understanding on, on, uh, some of the wild green complexes. Do you enjoy because there are so many? So, I mean, I was we're talking about this thing at the Alec Russell thing about there are so many greens that those guys built now, like the 11th at Yarra Yarra for what one example in Australia, but I'm sure there are plenty everywhere. What the sixth at Riviera, Jeff, where if if you built that stuff now, they think you were completely crazy. (laughs) Yet, those guys were doing it 80 years ago, they were building something. I mean, the Sitwell Park Green, the great tragedy of golf is. They blew up that Sitwell Park Green, oh. which was, you know, I mean, I mean, that would have been the coolest. I mean, every single golf architecture nut in the world would have made a pilgrimage trip to go and see that green at Sitwell Park. And as it is, no one ever goes to see that place because the green's gone. But, I mean, those guys had some some wild ideas that, that were great fun. Yeah. Is this the one that Doak was thinking of when he did 13 at Bumboogle? Case just for people, that yeah, 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 really yeah, wild. So, yeah, you, you play yeah. 13 at Barn Burgle, Zach. It's uh, I spend yeah. I spend 40 minutes yeah. there every time I go there. It's yeah, intriguing. such a good it's, uh, <laughs> and people, yeah. Of, after we saw that green, we uh, we actually sat down and we're like, we got to do something like that at the Buck Club. <laughs> so, we actually have a double Sitwell Park green where one of them's a kind double. of like a drivable part four, yeah, Ooh. yeah, it's kind of cool. So, so it'll be interesting. <laughs> Oh, well, the, uh, well have you yeah. thought a lot about green speeds uh, with with the Buck Club and kind of, of the impact that has on being able to do a green like that? Yeah, um, it, it's it's one of those things where you almost have to design a green to be a little receptive towards those fast green speeds because it's just one of those things that's it's i think that's something that would be really hard to to roll back because people are so used to like the fast greens and and it actually does affect everybody um so i think you got to be a little a little aware of that and you almost have to tell the person designing it or shaping it like hey we're gonna putt these at a 12 so be very conscious of what what we're shaping here and then just putt them at like a 10 <laughs> you kind of gotta you gotta oversell it yeah yeah that makes sense because of course the, the, the thing about green speed zach is they've you know the faster green speeds have come along later so we pl- see places like royal melbourne and augusta national songs at, at tournament golf. They're, they're frightening amateur golfers could not putt augusta national greens at tournament could they i mean you would never get around the golf course, would you? That's how quick and, and how ill-suited, perhaps, to the slopes, the speeds they run them at are. Yeah. Yeah, they've definitely, you know, a lot of the time they've gotten out of hand. But uh, um, at the same time, I think a lot of people are kind of accustomed to yeah. putting, you know, a, a 9 or a 10. They do get a little they get a little borderline or kind of on the edge of unfair or, or everything, everything like that. Once they get kind of over that 11, 11 foot range, I guess at a lot of places at least. What? Um, okay. Oh, go ahead. Go, go, go. go. Well, 
Uh, one of the things, Zach, that's interesting for good players that that uh, I've always admired about the really great players who know architecture, uh, Ben Crenshaw, uh, Jack Nicklaus, uh, Jeff Ogilvy, people people who really analyze and, and, and see every detail of a course since you've been been kind of on this uh, this journey of, of seeing courses and studying more and reading, ha- have you found it um, yourself still able to play tournament golf and and set aside your feelings for a golf hole or what you would do to redesign it or uh, a course setup that you just look at and go, well, this is terrible. This is emasculating this architecture. Are you as a a professional? able to set those feelings aside and go out and play or have you found yourself at times maybe letting that creep those emotions creep into your into your game i think i've done a good job of i'm able to kind of push it out during tournaments and just kind of focus on what i need to do out there uh during tournaments but definitely when you show up on a on a tuesday or something like that to see a golf course (laughs) and you see basically like the male practice going on out there of how bad some of it is. It's, it's pretty shocking and disturbing, honestly. What are the most common yeah. sorts of things you see in that way, Zach? I mean, not to tell you, but, but what do professional tournaments do that, that to, to try and make, to manipulate scoring that really does, as Shaq puts it, emasculate the architecture? What's the most common sort of thing? I mean, the easiest one to look at is like, you know, bringing in the fairways, uh, which is, you know, they shrink some of these fairways by half of what they should be in a lot of cases. And it really takes away kind of the strategy of golf. You know, it's basically just telling guys, hey, this is the place to hit it. You have to hit it down the middle. Um, and you can't really take advantage of any of the angles into some of the greens. And that's kind of half of the fun of golf really your your skype just broke up a bit there but i think we got the gist of it which is the narrower fairways is dictatorial golf you don't get to play to the angles clates which is the thing that you always talk about clates and to go back to the distance debate for a second many of the pro status quo or the anti-rollback crowd are blaming course architects for a lack of imagination in their course designs yeah this this is what we should be using to combat distance oh dear i've got the both of you going now this will be good sit sit back and put your feet up this will be good jeff uh sorry clates you go first well you can tell us you know when someone was complaining about modern design and i said have you guys been to sandhills or bandon or castle stewart or van bugel or stream song or cabot links or sand valley or any one of the great new courses that have been built in the last 20 years have you ever been to one of them i mean go to sandhills and tell me it's a you know an example of bad modern design you know it's if it was 100 years old it'd be what what is one of the best five or ten courses in america that's modern design i mean there's there's been so much great modern design going on in the last 15 years or 20 years it's ridiculous and and all, all it shows is the average tour plays ignorance of what modern design is i mean they think modern design's tory pines mm. you know I mean, which is probably the poster child of what zach was talking about of malpractice and ridiculous mowing lines and dull boring golf that's seen as good because you know eight out of power whatever wins the us open mm. i mean yeah, yeah as we said in the last podcast the whole debate's hijacked by the scores. Yeah. If the scores are high, the course is okay. So, so the average tour pro thinks that if you can put the scores up, so, so a high score wins, that means the architecture is good. 
and of course, which is completely missing the point, compl- altogether missing the point of what great architecture is. I can't even play devil's advocate. Yeah, it really goes back. It's, it's kind of the same thing that we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Is I think pe- people have just been drilled with this is good golf course architecture. This is good golf course architecture when they really have no idea on on what good golf what a good golf course is. And it's exactly like you said, you know, they think that if five under wins, that that's a good golf course. When in all reality, a par 70 golf course that a 270 wins at compared to a par 72 golf course that 270 wins at, it can be completely different. So I don't think people really have a clue on, on what's good and what's not. For the for the majority of people, which is kind of sad. So hopefully we can, you know, help people understand what's good. And I think we're doing a better job of that right now. Yeah, education is important, isn't it, Jeff? You were going to have a rant about those who are blaming the golf course designers and architects for the malaise of golf in the distance age. Oh well, I don't want to go down that rat hole too far, but it just it is amazing how that is thrown out and the lack of understanding and what what these issues with technology create in trying to design golf holes and. Um, and then once people do experience it somehow, either with their own course or uh, uh, trying to set up a course or trying to, to develop one, they, they, they come around. Um, but it's just it's ridiculous because uh, we're in a stroke play mindset and stroke play uh, combined with a lot of other factors just kind of stifles creativity and stifles the ability to to do a lot of things. And so the, uh, you're, you're hamstrung on a number of different fronts. Yeah. And, uh, that's why I, you know, I'm, I, I like asking uh, Zach kind of about the, the buck club approach and different things. Cause I'm, cause I know he, he knows a lot of good players and, and I know he wants it to be a place that good players like, but of course, when you, when you try to cater them, you also have to deal with some of the things that, that, that they, uh, the preconceived notions they come in with, which are things like, uh, it's gotta be fair and it's, mm-hmm. It's got to be, um, uh, you know, fun, but it's got to be still a challenge and all that kind of stuff. So, I, uh, I, I'm, that's why I'm anxious to, to kind of see what, what, uh, how he, how he uh, grapples with that. And, uh, but I think it's fantastic that he's kind of that he's putting these things out there and uh, for people to digest. Let's go to that then, Jeff, because Zach hasn't got a whole lot more time, and I do want to ask about yeah. the Buck Club. Zach, you've been around golf your whole life, you're a golf professional, you know, and yet you've decided to take on building a golf course. Are you completely mad? Don't Isn't it only the insane <laughs> that want to build a golf course? Surely it's the road to financial ruin. Tell us about the Buck Club, the idea, and why you're doing it. You know, basically we just don't have any, like, world-class golf in Utah and, you know, being from there, going to school there, living there now, it, it's just kind of one of those things. I feel like there's a lot of people that really appreciate golf and golf course architecture there. And I think it would be nice for them to have a place where they can go and kind of see those those golden age principles, you know, built into kind of a modern golf course and be able to go have fun day to day. Which all sounds great, but someone's got to pay for it, Zach. And it's the financials of golf courses that have tended to be uh difficult how do you deal with that it's a reality isn't it we'd all love the concept of a great free-for-all creative golf course that's fantastic the barn boogle juniors and the sand hills of the world what are the financial realities of that though yeah that's kind of one of the things we're going through right now making sure that we uh take care of that and find find some partners that 
that kind of understand exactly what you're talking about, that you're not going to go out and get rich building a golf course or building a, a club like this. And you kind of got to do it as a, a passion project and get some people that, that understand kind of the same views that, that you uh, are describing that you're uh, basically building this place because you love golf and kind of doing it for the greater good, I guess, of the game. It's a genuinely altruistic pursuit. Jeff Shackelford, how important is it that a PGA Tour player can have this sort of love of the game to pursue a project like this? What does that say to golfers generally? Does that bring more weight? Because PGA Tour players have tended to be involved in residential projects, which have been about money. Uh, it does because Zach has a passion for it. It's not like he's just attaching himself to a project. He, he really loves what he's doing and he, and he likes talking about it and, and getting ideas and soliciting things. And so he's kind of uh, pretty unusual in that sense. You know, we've, we're used to the tour pro who's just paid to add his name and come out and give a few thoughts and, and uh, move on to his next thing. So I think it, I, I've already, of a very strong belief that Zach's had a huge influence already on, on a number of uh, people and, and players and different people in the game, seeing that this other side that, you know, a lot of us have talked about, but when it's somebody who has been out there playing uh, tour golf and, and is a good player um, and it's genuine, and I think that's the main thing that it's, I mean, it was genuine with Jeff Ogilvy and it's genuine with Zach and that just, that takes it to a different level. Okay. And I think it's just, uh, it's just awesome. And then he has a great, uh, sense of social media and, and, and how to, to share things in a way that it's not like he's just rubbing it in that, Oh, I got to play Seminole today. And, uh, you know, he's not just checking off golf courses. He's really putting stuff out there that's educational and, and gets you thinking and, um, uh, and gets people discussing and debating, and I, I, I think it's just fantastic. You can't buy authenticity, can you, Jeff? That's that's the key to it, isn't it? Authentic is kind of the new... That is correct. It's the new thing, isn't it, in the market? If it's authentic, people are... Uh, are into it. Zach, does it come with any responsibility? Do you feel any responsibility, or are you just being Zach Blair? Yeah, no, I'm just kind of going and doing, uh, doing my thing and trying to you know, help better the game of golf. I think that's kind of one of the huge driving factors kind of behind this whole project and everything like that is like, if I can, I mean, this is bigger than the PGA tour and having a great career. You know, if you can, if you could help this generation and the, the younger kids kind of realize that, Hey, we kind of need a revolution in golf to, to get it back to kind of the roots of the game. It, it would be really important kind of in the, the history of the game. And I think that's all, all of us, at least, kind of want to see that. Mm, that's some important stuff there. Clates, the revolutions in golf that we've been told for the last couple of years that are needed uh, are uh, big hole golf and foot golf and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, talk about the importance of what Zach's suggesting. It feels to me like if we just let golf sell itself, people would buy it. Yeah, I, mean, I just keep going back to what Mackenzie wrote about. You know, people give up golf because they're bored with it because mm. the course is not interesting. So you, you can talk about all those gimmicky things and all the equipment and all this other stuff, but the more interesting the golf course is to play, the more the game will do well. And the, and the, and the more it's dumbed down and the more it's boring and dull and the, and the places aren't fun to go to or, you know, the modern word cool is kind of bandied around a lot. The clubhouses, I mean, we've spent millions and millions of dollars on clubhouses in Melbourne and none of them are very 
you know, I've been to 100 coffee shops and wineries and restaurants that are much more fun to sit inside than the average clubhouse that's had $20 million spent on it. Never been a strategic so, clubhouse, has there? Yeah, and that's a, you know, I think it's a really underrated part of a, of a cool experience at a golf course is having a great little clubhouse. Like Mike Kaiser's Dunes Club in Nine Hole Course in Michigan, it's, a, it's one of the best clubhouses you've ever been in. It's tiny, but it's such a fun place to sit in and have a drink and original, hang out and talk original, about golf. And, the original clubhouse at the Dunes Club, at Barnburgle Dunes, I think, is the same. The Lost Farm one is a bit more fancier and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. over at Barnburgle yeah. Dunes, the original one is a fantastic place to have some post you know, especially when it's well, cold and the fire's on. Well, well, and I had a, a little bit to do with that. I said, build a fire, have a cool bar. And, and Richard's brief to the architect was, if this golf course doesn't do any good and no one turns up and it goes broke, I want to be able to live in the clubhouse as my house. So it was basically designed as a, as a, as a smallish building that could be easily converted to a house if the golf course didn't work. So that's all. That's pretty much a, a great brief for an architect. Is you know, for a clubhouse brief is, you know, if it doesn't work. Let's turn it into a house and live in it. And, yeah. Right, it's a fantastic, know, it's a, fantastic sort of. Stuff. And, and it cost. And, and and the important thing was he did it for two million dollars. I mean, that's the most important thing. Is you know, he didn't spend fifteen million dollars on a thing that people, people don't go to the golf course for the clubhouse, but. Yeah, it can also be a great part of the experience if they're done well, or, or it can just be like going to an airport lounge, and there are lots of those in Australia, like new course, ones, which like, aren't. Like the course furniture that we discussed with Adrian at length yep. in that episode of the IC Golf Podcast, which people found quite staggering. Zach, do you feel like you're part of a bit of a movement? It seems to me that in the internet age, the digital age, the social media age, golf course architecture has suddenly become a topic that, whereas you used to have to seek people out almost, you know, in an underground way, others who might be interested – there's loads of people there. No laying up to a bunch of stuff about it. Of course, Andy at the Fried Egg that we already talked about, Derek Duncan in the Feed the Ball podcast. There's a real subculture. Do you get the sense that it's growing or is it just that we've all sort of found each other and realised there's more of us than we originally thought? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's kind of the cool thing uh, to talk about now, you know, and it's it's been refreshing to see how many people are kind of uh, appreciative of all of us bringing this stuff to the light and you know, giving them a place to, to discuss it with other people. You know, we get people all the time that reach out to us and just thank us for, for doing all this stuff and showing us what good golf course architecture is and showing us what bad golf course architecture is and, and just kind of helping people get a little more knowledge on the, on the subject as a whole. That's the controversial one and the tough one, isn't it? I even challenged Clates one day. He does a lot of those holes that aren't holes, you know, this tee to that green, and wouldn't that be fantastic? I challenged him one day to do holes that shouldn't be holes. It's tough to be <laughs> critical of existing holes, isn't it, and still and still maintain some sort of credibility. He, he didn't take the challenge, Zach. Are you up for the challenge? Holes that shouldn't be golf holes? I think there would be too many uh, <laughs> to, uh, to post on Twitter. You'd just be nonstop posting pictures, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you did, you did a bit yesterday, didn't you, Clates? There were some photos. You I put a few up yesterday. delved into w- it. Which was, you know, I mean, there were, there were two ridiculous part fires where from the middle of the fairway, well, the first one, it was just a, well, you know, two of, well, well, for me, it, I actually didn't play the hole because I got stuck on the tee and the guys drove off and I thought, I'm, and, and it was an Ambrose. So one of the guys whose T-shirts we needed to take, we took his T-shirt. And I, I said, this shot is so bad. You guys hit it. And, you know, if you screw it up, I'll play it. But just I'm not playing this shot. It's so horrible. I'm not going to play it. But, <laughs> you know, from the, 
from the middle of the fairway, you were hitting over a wall of trees some 200 yards on a par five to get to the green. So anyway, we got around to the ninth, which was the second last hole we played. And it was the same thing, in the middle of the fairway, playing over a wall of trees. Otherwise, just a five wood over the trees, par five. So I hit this five wood over the trees. And I walk up there, there's a massive lake in front of the green. My ball's in the middle of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even see it. It's your own fault. But, but the, it's your own fault, that's clearly. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. Well, one of the points I tried to make was it's actually important to have bad design. That's so people understand what bad design is. If there was no bad design, no one would know what it was. So to, in a sense, you, there's such radically bad ideas and bad holes. They're so obviously bad that if you make the point that this is what terrible design is, then it kind of sinks in a little bit more perhaps. So there's a place for bad design because it helps people appreciate what proper design is. I won't, uh, I won't ask you. Yeah, I, I loved the uh, story uh, when I was down in uh, Melbourne earlier this – or last year was when uh, Mackenzie left some of the stuff on 15 at oh, 15 Melbourne. West, said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to leave this to show people like how bad golf course architecture was before like before we figured it out. So. You definitely need to, to see bad so you can appreciate the good. Yeah, well, you've got to be sad so you can appreciate happy, don't you? That, that, that's the balance of life. It's absolutely <laughs> true. I'm not going to ask you where that yeah. golf course was, Clates. And Zach, I know that you've got to go, so we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. I'm going to take two things away from this, Clates. One is that there is a golf shot so horrible that you will balk at having to play it because it's so offensive. And two, that there's an Alex Russell Society. <laughs> I didn't know that, and the world's a better yeah, place that for was, that. Yeah, that was a big reveal on the show today, the Russell yeah, Society. Who's, wow. How many yeah, so are it's, it's Well, it's... Yarra Yarra, uh, Royal Melbourne, Lake Karana, Paraparam in New Zealand, and Riversdale. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about it because Tom Doak's just gone into the front line at Yarra Yarra and torn down about, it seems like 3,000 trees, but not that many. But, wow, you, you know, he's just gone there and pulled it, <laughs> which think, is it's so think, much better, you know. And yet, I think Zach is sending us a subliminal message. I believe I heard the sound of rustling iron, so I think we need to let him go, Rob. <laughs> Somebody has a bag over his shoulder and needs to return to his job. A Mackenzie Walker, no doubt. Zach, has a good ear. Talk to Yara Yara and Russell Society. Let's let him go play golf. What do you think? Zach, yeah. thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, I'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, mate. Take care. Bye. 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 See you, guys. Bye. Bye. Plates, yeah. what is the who is in the Alex Russell Society and what do they well, do? Yeah. Um, Yarra Yarra, Royal Melbourne, Paraparam, Riversdale, and Lake Karana, which are the five courses he did. Okay. So it's, um, but who are the people? Who are the clubs? Who are the people? How many of well, you? Well, the do? people are kind of the uh, club presidents, captains, okay. architects, uh, managers, committee pro. Um, so they organise it every two years. Okay. So we did the first one at Karen Up. I didn't go to the second one at Paparam, and I, I went to the third one at Well Yarra Yarra, where um, we spoke about you know how well we spoke about how poorly preserved his work had been, how, how much disrespect clubs had shown for it. Well, that's you the know, important, the thing, isn't it, Clates? That, that's what can come yeah. out of that is that when you yeah, explain you know, that, uh, Yarra Yarra, you you know if, if you'd gone there and criticised him for digging up Russell's fourth green twenty five years ago, you'd have been. Well, you've been disrespectful. How dare you criticise our golf course? I mean, and now there's a acknowledgement from everyone there that yeah, we ruined his work. Mm. So you know, they've hired Doak to fix it up. But but you know, I've watched for forty years that club's made one disastrous decision after another. That, 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 you know, essentially destroyed the whole essence of what he left. 
And in a sense, you know, Riversdale has been a little bit the same. You know, it was a beautiful golf course that's, you know, that, that, that's had different people hack at it and it's, it's just not what it was and it's not what he would approve of. And, you know, and, and Karen up across the country got um, none of his sophistication because he didn't go over there to build it. It was built by a bunch of contracted labourers and it was never as remotely close to the sophistication of his work at Yarra Yarra or, or Royal Melbourne. So we've kind of rebuilt Karen up and tried to get a bit of Russell's kind of flair into it and make it look a little better. I fell in love with it, Clayton. I've only been there once. I went to the tournament a couple of years ago when West Hazen won. And it, wow. That's good. I, I fell, as did Peter Uline, interestingly enough. He was actually asking yeah. about who designed it because I think he got to the top of the hill there on two and thought, this looks like somewhere else I've been once before. It's very um, much like that. Big sweeping golf course. Lovely stuff. And Power Brown's a great course in New Zealand. Man. If it was in Australia, it would be in the top ten in Australia. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a brilliant golf course. I mean, some great par threes. And, and Craig Parry won there, of course. And of course, the irony. Sorry? Craig Parry won there, of course. Craig Parry, Tiger Woods. That was a disaster. I think yeah, he finished uh, second. Let's, let, let's not go down that. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about what Clates is talking about there. Is a little bit of a worldwide movement as well, isn't it? And I hear this quite often. I've been listening to Derek Duncan's Feed the Ball, which is a fantastic podcast, and we must get Ian Andrew on. He was, he was a brilliant guest with Derek. But this notion of restoring work that's been kind of tampered with, not for the better over the years, and particularly, us, I think, a lot of Donald Ross stuff, it seems, in America, because he built so many golf courses or designed so many golf courses over there. What Clates has told me, there has become a bit of a realisation, hasn't there, amongst clubs and courses, what it is that they actually have and their responsibility to protect and perhaps restore it. Yeah, I'd say we were actually uh, probably ahead of you guys down there in yeah. some sense on that front. I don't know. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. so it, it took a while, though, as you know. But it, it, there have just been too many examples now of places where the people are just so much happier playing the course. And then they're also uh, happier with the prestige level having been raised and the, and the associations with a golf history that they should have been um, probably aware of or proud of sooner but nobody really understood a lot of these things uh, i mean we it's it, we just we have to remember it's not that long ago that frank hannigan wrote about tilling aston 1974 and and nobody uh knew who he was and and harry had only been dead for uh almost 40 years and um, was had three courses in the USGA rotation. He wrote this great story, or in the USGA uh, uh, on the calendar in that in that year. And these places went, wow, he sounds like an interesting guy. And and it, but it took a long time to to fully understand these things. And then also for people uh, to unearth all these great aerial collections that have been so important here in the United States. I don't know what you guys have in the way of aerials, but we were where people are continuing to find amazing collections and so it's it's happening the way we had hoped it would happen um and and it's uh but that said there for for all those places there's still amazingly many more mm-hmm. who uh who are still resisting it so uh, but that's okay that's all right there is a lot we'll, we'll get there <laughs> there is a lot to be positive about it and i find myself doing this you get bogged down in some of the you know some of the egregious sure. things you see on golf courses on tv and all those other things. but when you dig a bit there is an awful lot of good stuff happening in the background isn't there i mean you know, we've got the distance debate over to one side but in terms of architecture and those sorts of things there are a lot of good people noble people i think you know i don't put zach in that class in that way but clearly interested 
spreading the word, you know, just because they're interested in it. And there's a lot of good stuff going on, isn't there, Jeff? There's a lot to be yep. positive about yep. if you're into this sort of stuff. Uh, and, yeah, and I think we're, we're going to keep seeing more of it with yeah. the, the use of uh, drone photography. And, and, yeah. um, uh, and I think, you know, Zach's generation – uh, is is uh, it's interesting that the, the 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 dreaded I hate the dreaded millennial oh, word no. but yes. uh, it's it's interesting how many of them don't have much knowledge of history and it's kind of shocking sometimes to have to explain some, uh, some some things that happened not that long ago or to put things in context. And yet, at the same time, it's also a generation that has some. They ha- nostalgia is not the right word because to have nostalgia, you actually have to have some. Uh, experience <laughs> with the yeah, history, but right, they yeah. have an, uh, an interest in the the, um, the vibe and the energy around uh, certain things from the past and the scale of those things and the size and the feel and the look. Uh, and so it's it's a bizarre generation in that sense. And huh? so I don't care as long as they are they're enamored with the, the 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 elements that we are enamored with, which we know are ultimately the you know not the vanity part of this, but the actual experience and the fun and the and the enjoyment of of playing golf at a certain scale at a certain price uh, with certain characteristics that they're they're being drawn to that and then drawing other people in, and that's all that really matters. And that's that's to me the exciting part. And that's what's great about Zach too. Again, Very he's much. not just checking off. Uh, name courses. He, I mean, he's going to places, you know, that are that he's heard are really neat, but they're run down, or there, or or there, you know, there was an old architect, but he, it's, he's not deterred by uh, those kinds of things that a lot of people are, which is, oh, well, they don't have a very nice restaurant, and you know, all that crowd. They don't. Have, they have mats on the range, but yeah, but you know, he's, but yeah, but Mackenzie designed it, so I'm going there, and that's what's great about it. It's funny. I just started to listen to his latest episode of the Friday with Andy, and I've listened to the first couple of minutes. And what's come up? What are they talking about? How to recognise when a golf course has good bones? <laughs> that's exactly what you're doing. That's great, yeah. Here it is in terrible condition. Everything about it is. But if you know what you're looking for, you can see that this golf course has good bones. I'm interested to listen to the rest of it. Oh, I think oh, what yeah, you're outlining good. there, Jeff, really is that authentic word. Isn't the millennial general general generation sorry seeking authentic that's what it feels yes, like to me yeah and yeah i guess that's yeah that's it they they, they see through uh they see through and a certain lakes uh, and all. fakeness yeah <laughs> yep. yeah i mean we, we it's funny they get branded as not being authentic but yeah. but but oddly they they really have kind of a bs detector that's uh fantastic on on things like uh, on on golf architecture yep. for instance it's funny isn't it? i went to a well, the worst generation of Go, go the worst on. generation of a golf spend the baby boomers, haven't we? Yeah. The worst Very generation. Nice. Well, they're just really Horrible. not just off. Let's be honest, Clay. Just pretty much yeah. everything. Yeah. Well, everything, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a result sure, of it's true. fads, though? Don't we just get into fads in every part of life? And golf is just a part of sort of yeah, society. Uh, there know, are fads yeah. and golf courses go through fads. And when the fad says, doesn't matter what it is that you've got, you need to change it to be modern and hip and funny. And that's what baby boomers did. And they changed a bunch of stuff yeah. and, and ruined they a bunch did. of stuff. So, yeah. It's funny. I went to a wedding on Thursday night. All vinyl, the music. All vinyl records. Uh, this yeah, movement back yeah, to vinyl is, you know, and how many but, baby boomers are kicking themselves at the 300 record collections they oh, broke up and put into the rubbish the bin? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's a great example, too, because it's not just the, the sound of the vinyl they're drawn to. In fact, frankly, I think it's the cover, uh, a lot it? of them will tell you that that's the least interesting element. It's the, it's the uh, experience of oh, that, that you know and that I even know from, from the vinyl era that it's the opening, taking the wrapping off. Yeah. Opening up the album, listening it to the first time, looking at the notes and the artwork, 
The cover and art, the overall that's an industry experience. Cover art is just yeah. And the art, I mean, the artwork on some of those old albums mm. is amazing. And oh. and then and now on a CD, the CD experience, trying to get that stupid sticker off, and then it's just yeah. On the booklet, you needed yeah. Even if you have good eyes, you couldn't read it. And and that experience just wasn't connecting you to the music the way that, that other experience is. And so they've seen that's a great example of one they've kind of just uh, brought back. It's uh, it's just you know to me that's it's 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 pretty obvious why doesn't it neatly Clates tie into the person the persimmon driver versus the modern driver don't we see exactly the same thing and I wonder oh, whether, whether the, yeah, there'll be a move back to that in some ways the beautiful uh, crafted and the grains and versus the mass produced stamped out like the city anyway we won't go down all that road I think we, that's going to be a tough one yeah. We'll, must, yeah. well, you know, there's a movement to that too. I mean, I've got a mate, uh, you'd know him, uh, Clay, Warren Smith, he's a rugby league commentator on Fox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Loves oh. his golf. Uh, he started off, he went a bit hickory nuts, and now he's got into persimmon. Um, and, you know, he gets to fly around the country covering football games and whatnot, but he's always on Gumtree and eBay <laughs> looking for persimmon and, and old stuff in the cities that he's travelling to. You know, and he'll drive 45 minutes out of town to buy something out of somebody's garage if he's seen it oh, on wow, Gumtree. So, and he's really into it. And uh, he's got me sort of, I'm really thinking, I'll, actually, I might get you help to get a driver, Clates. But you look at those golf clubs and they're works of art. It's like the old album covers. You think, wow, why did we ever go away from this? This is beautiful. It's harder to play, but it's beautiful to look at. Um, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're beautiful clubs. And you, you could go to Japan and... and Every golf shop you went into, there'd be a rack of Honda drivers. There'd be a hundred of them. Wow. And they'd all be perfect. Yeah. By the way, I, I, I know you want to wrap this up, Rob, but I got to tell you about yesterday, this experience I had on that topic of, of those McGregor's. Um, I, I shot a thing for Golf Channel for the Masters on the 13th hole with Nick Faldo. And I don't know how much we'll make. Uh, we didn't shoot it at Augusta. Ah. No, we, he came to golf channel headquarters and we have these oh, big plans that josh yeah. pettit who's a, a mckenzie uh, uh file uh created for us to show to him and to to ben crenshaw and so the other thing though we were going to do with him was show him in 96 playing the 13th hole and going back and forth with his bag he never had doubts about going for the green and two but but this is and i don't want to spoil it because again i don't know how much will it make the air but as you know faldo when he's Talking Augusta, he's just amazing. But he, it's a four-minute thing, which he said, God, it's a good thing I wasn't in the booth. I would have been absolutely <laughs> roasting me, taking four minutes to hit a shot. And, you know, Norman, poor Norman's standing there, and everything's falling apart. And and he's going back and forth. And Ken Venturi has no idea what he's trying to do. And it's, and, and it's just fantastic television. It's the most amazing sequence. But the thing was, he had this McGregor five-wood. And as soon as he got up to the shot, when Fanny told him it was 215, he said, that club was 215. That was my, that was the yardage for that club. And it was like, oh, great. And he pulled it. But then when he, when he went to put the club down, the plate just didn't sit right on the lie. And for whatever reason, that's why he ultimately backed off the shot, not because he was having doubts about going forward in two. But I tell this story because, of course, five wood, 215, that was 1996. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't that long ago. No. <laughs> that was 22 years ago. Yeah. 215 now is, is a... Six on. Five on. Six or a seven. Uh, uh, well, now that, uh, uh, the, I, I've been hearing rumblings that the lofts are... or uh, Some of these guys in their lofts are, are getting even stronger this year. So it's that's where we're getting some of these ridiculous irons. Well, didn't... From, um, now, from up in the trees in 2010, on the right there, did Mickelson not hit six iron from 210? 
if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, after the main stride. So that gives that it a slightly good. downhill sort of a thing. But still, that's 210, and he's thinking, you know, he's going between 6-iron. Point. Maybe yes, five iron and Faldo from yeah. 30 yards to the left. Clearly a completely different shot. One of the genius things about the 13th hole, but uh, he's thinking five. Same general two. yardage. Uh, actually, no. Uh, actually, it's interesting you say that. Where Faldo was, uh, I believe they've crept in the pine needles and maybe have a tree. They've, they've narrowed that area oh, okay. a little bit. It was one of his feet, was it not? If I recall, wasn't he? Was almost, it was. It was almost uh, baseball said, style. It was, uh... Yeah, it wasn't. He said, you know, we were watching. He goes, it was more than what we're seeing here. The television's flattening yeah. it out. But um, it, it, um, it I, I don't know if the spot that he was on is fairway today or not. Um, and that's actually a very good question. I, I uh, and he, I don't think he knows either. But I think he might go investigate now. But anyway, what it a, was fantastic stuff. I was going to say, was what a shocked. joy that must have been, Jeff. That's a really oh, – I mean, oh. wow. What a, <laughs> how would you love to do that, Clyde? Sit with Nick Fowler well, and talk through the 13th in 96. That's fantastic. Yeah, it out? really was. It's going to be – I hope that uh, – I mean, we had told him what we're going to do, what the feature is, and and we, we, we focused on Faldo and Crenshaw because those two are the have had big moments on the 13th hole. They're multiple Masters champions, and they're really the two that have the true passion for the dynamics of the risk and the reward mm-hmm. and who we knew could – because the ultimate gist of the story is is to lengthen or not to lengthen. And what what is the key to preserving the 13th hole's essence uh, going forward? And so that's, the, that's what motivated them to do this feature. And then, you know, we're going to have really cool – I mean, this is a high-end production – uh, for for Golf Channel, like their feature department does, wow. uh, they're fantastic. I hope we get a lot of it online. We're we're trying to use a lot of photos instead of footage because they're limited in how much they can use. And obviously, when you use footage, it's harder to put it online. But the set, the one thing I will tell the the club Augusta National is the whole session we did with Faldo watching Ken Venturi broadcast him on the 13th he starts talking back to Ken <laughs> in the session we had and they should just have it for their archives because it's the kind of thing somebody will watch 50 years from now uh, when they're researching the history of Augusta and just get the biggest kick out of uh, this guy you know barking back at the uh, at the announcer and and, and I just forgot because how good Venturi was too at that because he was just and I don't know if Faldo even really re- realized, but but Venturi was not criticizing him. He was he was scared for him. You know, he he knew Billy Joe Patton hit it in the creek. He he was a yeah. player in his heart. He was he was like, oh, what are you doing? What wait wait what what? You know, and it, and it's it's beautiful. It's so fun to watch. So anyway, bunch of stuff I'd love to ask you about. But Clates, isn't it just doesn't it just warm the heart? Speaking of good things happening in the game, here is Golf Channel, you know, which should represent the game, and here they are doing stuff about golf course architecture and why it's important. That alone is fantastic yeah. news, isn't it? That those who watch the Golf Channel with no interest in architecture will see this and maybe have a little bit of interest spark. That's a huge positive, I think. And full props to Golf Channel. Um, yeah, this was, this was their, their kind of, they just sort of threw it out at me that like, what do we do? 13th hole lengthening. And I said, well, I I just don't think you want to get bogged down too much in the specifics of, of lengthening. It's a great way to tell the story. Yeah. And then by the way, it kind of gives people an understanding of the dynamics involved when you lengthen a hole, what you have to be cognizant of. And, and ultimately in the case of that hole, it's all about that landing area and getting guys to a spot where it makes them agonize yeah. and debate just like the guys before them did. And it, forget all the numbers, forget Alistair McKenzie and uh, Bobby Jones and what we would love to see restored on the whole. 
if you think come at it from that point of view, you're going to preserve that whole for what it is, which yeah. is, you know, those moments when those guys get there and have to, to agonize over that decision. Cause that's what you want. You want yeah. them to have to, to, that's the kind of skill and work and difficulty we want. We don't care what the final score is. We want them to have to go through that. And, and then hearing these guys today, it's still the moments, you know, the greatest moments of their career really are those, those moments on that hole. And, uh, I mean, Faldo watching him watch himself, um, he's seen it many times on highlight films, but to actually watch, he just became obsessed with watching the dialogue, trying to read his lips and read Fanny's lips. And then he's going, look at Fanny there. Look how, look how there's just no, uh, there's no doubt in her. There's no, it's just, she's businesslike. She's giving me the stuff. And, uh, you know, just watching him watch the dynamics of it and seeing the, the, the kind of the emotions it stirred up was, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege. So God, it was really neat. So God, hopefully we'll, we'll we be get able to, to get, yeah, well, well, I know we'll get to see some of it, and I'm going to really work to get snippets of whatever kind of misses a piece as uh, as little online fun parts that, that, that uh, don't involve footage so that people can see it. Because you guys can watch Golf Channel videos they post online, right? Some, yeah. Not all some, I think. Um, Interesting. Can't, can't okay. get the live stuff, but I think I'm, I'm trying to think. No, about. no, no. But the online videos yes, they you post, can. Yes, you can. Those. Yeah, okay. it's not always seamless, cool. but yeah, it is good. Do you know the great thing about that, Jeff, is that if you do put it online, I'll be able to save the link to it. And then next year on the 18th at Torrey Pines, while JB Holmes is considering his layup, I'll be able to watch it. <laughs> that was really all, Faldo. The first time he watched it through, he was that was his main reaction was, my God, I took a long time. But he said, you know, at the time, it just didn't feel like it. No. It just, he was, you know, it just was, it, it just didn't. And, and it felt like a long time because Norman had taken forever as well. Yeah. Norman had taken the same amount of time debating whether to go over the creek from out of the trees here. He, he, I mean, he must have taken four minutes as well. So it was, yeah. it, it must have been fully six or seven or eight minutes for the, those two guys to play those shots. Yeah. It yeah. might. It must have been. I mean, it, and I know that you opened your, we did the book club on the grounds for golf, which, by the way, Jeff, I must say, reading it again was just phenomenal and oh. recommend everybody do it. But you opened the book with that whole sort of scenario and, that's a huge moment in golf, wasn't it? That that 13th hole in 96 will live forever as one of golf's yeah. great passages of play. And the time didn't matter because it was no, fascinating. No, no, and that, that's right. And that's what Faldo discussed, you know, that at least I was taking the time because I was going for the effing green, unlike J.B. Holmes, <laughs> it, you know, it took forever on a layup, and it was all he was debating about was what to lay up with, and then he hit a horrible layup he, shot. You know, like, yeah, at least line, we got the reward yeah, that's of right. a great moment there. The and, best line about that was that he, about Holmes that I read was he hit a layup that a 10 marker would have been ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. absolutely, and it, and it was true. Yeah, it's absolutely. But thanks for doing that show. Uh, I need oh, no, to uh, it was fab- fabulous. post on that. Uh, yeah, it's really. I appreciate. I, it was really neat seeing the uh, commentary on Twitter. It, well, people really enjoy. I've been surprised how much people have enjoyed that book club idea. Like, quite surprised. I, you know, what we do here at State of the Game is popular. You know, and we talk about stuff. But the book club, people really get into it, um, and it's been fabulous to see. And it's been great. Well, it for makes me sense. Gives me you know, when you an opportunity to read books read I've wanted book, to yeah. read, too, which, I, which I haven't. So it's fantastic. In fact, Case is doing the next one with us, The Eternal Summer. So, um, oh, nice. Which uh, which we'll be looking for. In fact, that's next week, Case. We better get on with reading so that we're uh, ready yeah, to go. Yeah, you better get reading. We better Let's start reading. Mind you, you can read that book in a day, so it's... You can, and and my feeling is, Clates, like all the books you've read, you seem to be able to quote them at will, so you probably don't need to read it again. Clates has always got a quote shack. Doesn't matter what discussion you have, he's got a quote to back up whatever he's saying. <laughs> he's brilliant. 
No, uh, I need to read it again. Indeed. Enough out of us. We've gone for too long, but it's been fantastic. Clay, it's great to get you on board today and enjoyed your commentary as always. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Yeah, indeed. And look forward to next week. And Jeff, been fantastic to talk to you two weeks in a row. What a treat. And I can't wait to see that photo yes. piece. Thank you today. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you, Rod. And thank you to Zach for uh, for joining us. And uh, good luck with the uh, the edit on this one today. Yeah. <laughs> Which will be later today after I've played my 18 holes of Saturday competition. Good. Enjoy your golf. Huge props and thank you to Zach for doing it. As Jeff just said, we hope, hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. That is, if you're still with us, we'll be back to do it all again on the next episode of State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.